You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited Podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you, the DU Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Ducks Unlimited Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Jennings. Joining me today is my co-host, Dr. Mike Brazier. Mike, how are you? Doing well, Chris. How are you? And also joining us today for the first time ever on the DU Podcast, our editorial director of Ducks Unlimited Magazine, Matt Young. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Now, this is an exciting show. This is the Bebop Analysis. Mike, I want you to go ahead and kick this off. You, you kind of mentioned that you wanted to encourage our listeners to submit questions based on everything that we talk about today. So go ahead and do that. There's a lot going on right now. The breeding population survey report from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service was released last week, first time in three years. We've been putting out a lot of information about it. Uh, we had podcasts last week where we talked about it. We're going to be doing a series of these. We have a live cast event coming up this Thursday. And one of the things that we want to do throughout all of this is encourage people to, and because we have the podcast as a great forum for this kind of near real-time engagement as people listen to it. If you have questions, if you want us to follow up on certain uh, on, on certain things that we say, that we touch on, maybe we don't touch on something that is of interest to you, reach out to us through the, the email that we've set up here for the podcast to, to share your thoughts and questions. And that email is it's pretty simple. It's dupodcast at ducks.org, dupodcast at ducks.org. We have had several people reach out to us already, you know, through the years, over the past couple of years, and then even also at the maybe even late last week with some questions. And so a lot of times those questions become the theme for a future episode. Um, and so, yeah, I encourage people to do that. There's opportunities to rate the podcast, to review the podcast. That's something that we hadn't really talked about, mm-hmm. Chris. That's a very easy way for people to support conservation. You may not think about it in in, in that way, but the, the more you support this podcast, the more you are actually are supporting the mission of Ducks Unlimited and our efforts to conserve habitat. So get engaged in all those different ways. Yeah, and sometimes we'll send you a DU podcast hat. That's right. We'll do that too. Tell them what they want. Yeah, that's right. Uh, first thing we need to we need to do, one thing is go back and get uh, Matt to introduce himself. Absolutely. do that? Yeah, you know, we do this with every podcast guest. Um, you know, what we do is we really just allow these guests to introduce themselves, you know, name, you know, what you've done, how long you've been working for DU, um, and really, you know, why we've brought you on this podcast, which is, you know, a really, really cool story to bring to our audience. Um, So, Matt, go ahead and take it away. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Um, Well, uh, my title is Editorial Director. I oversee DU's three uh, magazines, Ducks Unlimited magazine, of course, Wetlands America, which is a new annual publication we've come out with in the past two years, and of course, Puddler Magazine, which is our kids' magazine. Yeah. Um, I've been a DU employee since 1992, so I've celebrated my 30th anniversary at DU this summer, something I'm very proud of. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was part of that group that uh, came on board when Ducks Unlimited moved from its old headquarters location in Long Grove, Illinois, to Memphis. Um, we're, we're known as the class of 92, essentially, <laughs> and uh, our, our ranks have dwindled, mm-hmm. uh, but there's still a few of us left around, so I'm, I'm, I'm proud to say that I I'm one of them. And you started out as an intern. Uh, no, no, I did not. Oh, no, that's right. You did the uh, the youth, the, yes. the Canada trip. So that was like your introduction. How old were you when you did that? I was uh, 16 years old. Wow. Uh, Ducks Unlimited used to have a essay, a green wing essay competition. And uh, they broke it up by flyway. They picked two winners from each flyway. And the winners, uh, which I was fortunate enough to be one of, got an all expense paid trip 
to Alberta. And the Alberta DU Canada staff ran a, uh, they call it a Green Wing Adventure. And you would go and, and tour DU projects with, uh, you know, these biologists and see the work and do a lot of other fun things. So it was just an incredible experience. How old uh, were you when you did that? I was 16. Wow. So it's kind of mind-boggling. Yeah. It was discontinued at some point. I think the liability, you know, flying kids around the country like that just got too great. But it was a wonderful experience for me and really, uh, you know, eye-opening in terms of uh, what DU does and the impact on the on the landscape. It was, it was amazing. Um, at that time, uh, the prairies were going through a very severe drought. This was in 86. And that was really evident on my trip. Uh, you know, the DU projects in Alberta, uh, they have a very active program where they use irrigation water to uh, essentially fill uh, the DU projects. So they're they were somewhat drought-proof. That was the old term they used to use mm-hmm. for them. Yeah. So during our, our travel, you could see that the landscape was just incredibly barren and dry, but then you had these DU projects that had irrigation water supplied to them, and they were full of ducks, and they were green, and and that really, uh, that that's never really left me. It really was an uh, eye-opener and, and an inspiring uh, trip to see what Ducks Unlimited does. Now, you know, the, the careful listener is going to fire off, and maybe several of them, a lot of, uh, several questions about why we don't still do that. Mm-hmm. We actually get that question maybe every now send and then. An email. <clears throat> yeah. Why don't we do any kind of intentional flooding, inundation of all these prairie potholes during the drought years? And we've learned over the years, right, through a lot of the investigations and, and kind of studies of nesting ecology of ducks and so forth. And that van, that landscape is so vast, and we're talking millions of small potholes that are scattered all across that landscape. It's just not practical mm-hmm. to, to quote drought-proof the prairie, you know, that way through any kind of in, intentional pumping. We don't do those kind of big projects, you know, uh, yeah, anymore, right? Yeah, that's a great point, Mike. Uh, yeah, the drought-proof term was kind of that is, I guess, an antiquated. Uh, terminology and right, uh, that is a good point to make. Of course, is but, it, but that's that was what we thought about it back at the time. Right, right, right. and and those those were great. Uh, if nothing else, they were like showcase projects and great things to show. Like we were a green wing group of green wings or volunteers, and they really were. And I think they're still up there, aren't they? A lot of yeah. those kids, oh, yeah. oh, yeah. and there's still value there. there yeah. and a lot of those larger permanent water bodies are very valuable as molting habitat because you've got to have that secure water during that late summer uh, flightless period of molt. They're not very valuable from a production standpoint is probably the clarification that we should make. It's those small temporary ephemeral wetlands that are, that are really drive that production, which we may even talk about here as we get into this. Yeah. And you know, one thing, you know, Mike went down and asked Matt yesterday, came to his office and asked him to join us on this podcast. And, and, you know, his wealth of DU knowledge, obviously. <laughs> it, it was um, obvious. Yeah. The moment I started talking with him, he started pulling out numbers that he had gotten from this report. And I said, you got to be on the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, Matt has done the waterfowl forecast in Ducks Unlimited Magazine, some of our listeners may remember, which we stopped doing in 2015 due to the fact that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service releases the numbers so much later that now we don't have an opportunity to put it in the September-October issue. But Matt has done the waterfowl forecast for 20 years, so you were in tune. And tell us a little bit how, tell us about that process, but also, you know, how you, over the 20 years, you know, how you just worked on this. It basically became a template for you, right? Absolutely, yes. We uh, would... Every year, they would release the numbers typically in uh, uh, July, Mm -hmm. and it was then what I would then do is take those numbers and and do an analysis of you know where the uh, populations were relative to recent years, relative to the uh, long term average. Uh, Broke it up by flyway. I matched the transect areas that you know were most uh, directly. Or the most directly fed each flyway. Uh, that was kind of, and that and that was done in consultation with our chief scientist uh, Bruce Bat. He recommended that we do it that way. And then what was really interesting about that for me was, in addition to just going through the numbers, uh, I also called DU staff 
um, around the uh, breeding grounds, both in Canada and the United States, and got a kind of a firsthand account of what the breeding season was like. And it was really very interesting. Uh, it was great to talk to these guys, guys like Jim Ringelman mm-hmm. in the uh, Great Plains office, uh, Mark Francis of DU Canada uh, up in uh, yeah. Winnipeg, uh, Ian McFarlane uh, in Alberta. So it's really got to to know these guys, and it was always fascinating to hear their observations. So we basically we had the hard data from the uh, Fish and Wildlife Service, and then we had these kind of firsthand references uh, or perspectives from DU staff. And that it was always a very fun project. I had to crank it out fast because mm-hmm. our deadline was right at the beginning of August. So there was always uh, kind of a bit of a deadline pressure there, but it was it was a very enjoyable project, and uh, I'm glad to hear that it's going to come back. We're going to do it at least for this year. This is a significant year because it's the first time in three years that we've had survey results, and so yeah, we'll be uh, cranking out a, uh, a a version of that <clears throat> uh, for what will it be? The November December November December. That's right. Yeah, so that. The deadline for producing that is like what mid September. Got a lot of thoughts That's, up here in the head. <laughs> I was going to say, you better crank that out, Mike. Yeah, we're getting on it. We're getting on it. But glad you're bringing that back, um, Mike. It'll be very popular. It's kind of goes to the heart of of what DU does, yeah. and so I look forward to reading that. And I'm sure our readers will too. Yeah, and, and there's a lot to be learned from the survey results that we've got this year. You know, in contrast to what we've had over the past seven or eight. You know, given the two year gap. But yeah. Yeah, and, and, you know, one of the cool things about that waterfowl forecast story that always jumped out to me was, you know, the Ducks Unlimited magazine does a survey on each issue, um, and, and Matt, you can speak to this. That waterfowl forecast piece was pretty much the most popular piece that we did in the magazine every year that you did, every single year. I mean, it was historically, it was so popular. That's that's right. It, our our readers love that, um, and and no surprise that that like I said, it kind of goes to the heart of of what DU does, and uh, you know it, it did reflect on you know prospects for the season. Uh, if there's good production, hunting success usually goes up. Of course, weather's always a key factor, but uh, it, it's relevant. I mean, those numbers are relevant to hunters um, as well as. Uh, to the management community. So I, it didn't, didn't surprise me that uh, people enjoyed it. And uh, you know, we're glad again that we'll bring it back in our November issue with uh, Mike as the author. Yeah, that'll be great. And that, and that's like you mentioned with the podcast. You know, this The podcast gives us a platform that is even a little more long form than mm-hmm. what the magazine can offer. I mean, we're yeah. limited on pages with that piece. Um, but this opportunity here, this podcast is is going to give us and give Mike and, and Matt really great opportunity to really talk about these numbers and discuss what some of this stuff means. Um, we're going to start this off with um, the mid-continent. You know, we're going to do the Mississippi Flyway and the Central Flyway breakdown of the traditional survey area mm-hmm. there. Um, and so, Mike, if you want to go ahead and, and really get the ball rolling here with this analysis jump right in. I'll do that. I'll reference for anybody that might have missed it, our quick little 15-minute episode that we did last week right after the numbers broke. Chris and I did a little high-level overview of it. Go back and go back and listen to that if you haven't already because there's some, you know, high points in there. <clears throat> a couple of things I'll say here at the beginning. If you hear any papers rustling or anything like that, I apologize, but I got like two or three reports here in front of me because I got a lot of information, right? <laughs> so I'll be flipping through some of this. Uh, the other thing that we didn't do, the I guess, last Friday on that other episode, which we really should have done and we, we are we try to always be careful to do is to is to acknowledge the people that actually do this survey. I've seen the other the other interesting, fun uh, kind of I guess opportunity this has given us is to see a lot of engagement on our social media pages. Uh, some of the engagement makes you scratch your head, and you know it's like, wait, what are they thinking? <laughs> what are they thinking? But then there's also it reveals that there are some things that. Maybe they're new to hunting. Maybe they're new to these data. Maybe they've never even heard of them that they just don't understand about them. They see us post the numbers on our website with a press release and they think that it's Ducks Unlimited's numbers. They're not Ducks Unlimited's numbers. They are the result of highly coordinated surveys conducted and led by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, the Canadian Wildlife Service, and representatives from selected or really a a diversity of state and provincial agencies. There are a lot of the states in the South even, although 
the survey isn't conducted in the South, a lot of those agencies will send some of their staff north, in some cases, to collect some of those data, serve as observers or ground truth uh, participants or whatever. So those are the people that are responsible for collecting the data. Fish and Wildlife Service processes the data, generates the report, and then we have the fun job of communicating about it and getting it out there to the people that care about it and then talking about it on these type of platforms. So we'll start here with all that said. Actually, Mike, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead, Matt. Oh, I was just going to say that, uh, you know, I've gotten to do a lot of neat things with DU over the years, but probably right at the top of my list was to accompany the uh, uh, flyways biologist and the ground crews on the uh, survey uh, back in 1998, yeah. uh, which is a great year to to be up there. It was wet. Uh, duck populations were on the upswing. Um, but uh, it re- it taught me really two things. One uh, was that when you get up in the air, you really see, and this goes to your point earlier, Mike, uh, what a vast landscape it is, particularly in the prairies. Um, and uh, you really, really is apparent that to really move the needle for ducks, you really have to, to deliver a lot of acres. Uh, policy is very important because mm-hmm. that impacts the whole landscape. Uh, that's very apparent. Uh, the other thing is that it's actually pretty simple. Uh, what they're counting are ponds and ducks. And when it's wet, uh, there are lots of ponds and there are lots of ducks. And when it's dry, you might have you know only a handful of ponds on an entire transect. And as a yeah. result, duck numbers are going to go down. Um, so it is just kind of simple arithmetic. Yeah. Uh, there's no you know there's no mystery or <laughs> or complex aspect of it. It's it's just counting ducks and ponds. Yeah. Yeah. So that's very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, before we jump into there, and I kind of launched you into it there, Mike, and now I'm going to take a step back. Mm-hmm. Uh, Matt and I have talked about this a lot, and I know you and I have briefly. Uh, the popularity of this type of content, you mentioned how we post it on Facebook, and, mm-hmm. you know, there's 700 comments, yeah. and, you know, it's hit 750,000 impressions on this one little post. Um and, and Matt and I have talked about the, the popularity of this type of content with when we switched from the magazine Waterfowl Forecast to the digital version, which we were, you know, maybe hitting a little bit younger audience. Some of the communications that we have on like Instagram and even we did, you did a TikTok video, mm-hmm. Mike. You know, people yeah. should check I'm, that out. I'm really big on TikTok. Yeah, things, yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, that audience <laughs> and, and what, I've, what we've always talked about is, you know, there's a certain generation of hunter and I'm in there. Um, that has never, I mean, I've always been involved with the numbers, obviously, because I work at Ducks Unlimited, but has never had to look at those numbers Mm -hmm. and be concerned that there's going to be a restricted season where Matt, on the other hand, was telling a story yesterday about how he would get the newspaper. And Jack, go ahead and tell that story because I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's very interesting. Uh, I and, and when you invited me on this podcast, it's something I hadn't thought about in a long time. But uh, I used, I grew up in Mississippi, but my mother's family is from Chicago, and they had my grandparents had a house on Lake Michigan that uh, we used to go up and visit to escape the Mississippi heat. And uh, they, my grandmother, got the Chicago Tribune, and they had a uh, great outdoor. Uh, section back in those days. And that's my earliest memories of reading about the duck numbers was up there in Chicago reading the the, uh, Chicago Tribune outdoor page, and they did a a big uh, summary of the the survey results. So I was, you know, five, six years old, probably first first times that I read that. And I was, you know, my dad hunted ducks, so I was into, into it too. And he was interested in the numbers, and so I. They go. My memories of those reports, uh, those survey reports, go way, way back. Yeah, and that, you know that just leads us to you know, like I said, that generation of hunter that doesn't know has never had to look at these numbers and be concerned that that season could be restricted. Now, as we get into this, Mike, you know, we can you know really kind of start looking at you know the possibilities, not this season by any means, but you know where the thresholds are, you know, and you can, as we discuss certain species and certain specific mm-hmm. areas, I think, you know, that kind of lends the opportunity to reflect back on that, where it's like, you know, some of these hunters that are posting their pictures on Instagram have never been in a yeah. restricted season. So, you know. <laughs> yeah. 
my my head is, and I have to apologize for the nasally sinusy sounds. If I have to clear my throat every now and then. it's just something. I don't know if it's allergies this time of year, but it's it. Just, I just can't get rid of it. Um, so my apologies for that. But uh, my head is kind of spinning, thinking about all the different kind of roads that we can go down in this conversation. Uh, I've seen a lot of the comments on our Facebook. Um, uh, site or on our post asking about harvest regulations. Why don't we restrict it? Why, why don't we're down uh, lowest numbers in nearly 20 years? Feels like we ought to be uh, approaching a, a restrictive season. Why don't we scale it back? And and it's natural to to think to for, for, to feel that. And you can go back. People can go back and listen to some of our other other episodes, uh, earlier episodes where we spoke with Dale Humberg and Ken Babcock on sort of the history of waterfowl harvest management. And they went through that phase for decades of having an incomplete, and we still have an incomplete, but having just sort of a uh, a fledgling understanding of waterfowl population dynamics and the importance of harvest in driving those up and down fluctuations. And Dale liked to refer to it as they did a lot of tinkering, year-to-year tinkering based on what they saw the population do up or down. And and a lot of that was based on the the belief that harvest is what drove duck populations, both short-term and long-term. And make no mistake, you talk to Fred Johnson, uh, not Fred Johnson, uh, Jim Nichols and others in the Fish and Wildlife Service, and they're always careful to say, you can you can over-harvest a population. The commercial the you know, market hunting era taught us that, right? So let's not get too, uh, too loose with the idea that harvest doesn't drive populations because you can over-harvest a population, any population, if you try hard enough. But in the modern era of waterfowl harvest regulations, data set after data set is now showing that those year-to-year variations are not closely tied to the differences that we measure in intensity of harvest from those years. So, um, so basically, I get kind of going down a rabbit hole here, but <laughs> what I'm trying to say is that... Um, that instinct that we see a lot of times on on our on social media posts is like, well, maybe we should ratchet back the, the harvest. Um, and I say we, that's the waterfowl managed community. Ducks Unlimited has no role in harvest in setting harvest regulations. Um, but that it's a natural feeling. But the more our state and federal scientists have applied data, a lot of the data, you know, coming from these this report, harvest report that's also out there, banding data. It tells us, it tells them time and again that for most of these species, given current regulations, they're not what are driving those up and down fluctuations, which leads to the question, what is then? It's it's the annual changes and long-term changes, depending on what the time period over, you, you know, you're looking at a change in a population, uh, changes in habitat, uh, the, the amount of habitat and the quality of that habitat that's driving that kind of stuff. So I went way off down a tangent <laughs> that I wasn't planning on it, but it's, it's relevant to yeah, the way people are, are looking at these data, the way people used to look at those data. Matt, that's why whenever you grew up in an era where those harvest regulations did fluctuate more frequently, Right. We've been under liberal frameworks for oh, 27? 27 years, something like something, that. Yeah. That's driven by a more explicit application and deeper understanding of the data and population dynamics. And there are some species within this suite for which we have more restrictive bag limits pintail. That's one that we'll talk about. And there's a reason for that. Like I said, you can over-harvest a species relative to its capacity, productive capacity. And that's what our models, their models are always trying to do is to match up harvest with productive capacity. So, all right. That's all right. No, that's that's a great point. Yeah. Great point, Mike. And I and I do I'm dating myself, of course, but I do I remember hunting ducks during the point system days. Mm-hmm. And frequently the point uh, amount allocated to different species changed year to year. Yeah. And that was something hunters had to keep up with and and uh, was was somewhat challenging. Yeah. Uh, when a Drake Mallard went from 25 points to 35 points and gadwalls, you know, they were 10-point duck, but uh, toward the end of the point system, they went to 20. Yeah. Uh, and you could go on and on, but uh, yeah. And I asked Jim. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but relevant to that, Jim. I asked Jim Dubovsky that very question. Could we had in the in our collection of history of harvest management episodes had Jim Dubovsky on? Where I think it was two episodes with him where we talked about the point system. And I asked him that question: What kind of information? What kind of science went behind a change from a gadwall, but from um, increasing gadwall from ten to twenty or? Uh, one, another species or sex species combination from 10 to 15 or whatever it might have been. He said, yeah, 
wasn't that strong, you know? It's a lot of kind of feeling and guessing, and I mean, there was some data applied to it, but not the rigorous application of models they have today. Yeah, and I know people complain now the regulations are too confusing, and they're like, Matt, I, they've obviously never hunted in the point system. <laughs> you know, it's like, that would just be, I'm not very good at math either, so I'd struggle out there. Yeah. Uh, but, yep. you know, the, of hunters of, of our generation, Mike and I, mm. uh, Chris, you're a little younger than we are, but we went through that that devastating drought in the yeah. in the mid to late 80s, and it carried all the way through into the early 90s, where the limit in the Mississippi flyway was thirty uh, three ducks, Mm-hmm. Thirty day season, uh, you only got two mallards, and that was a, that was kind of our formative years of of waterfowl hunting. So I always use that as kind of the baseline when I when I look at the survey results, and it's almost thankfully it's almost always better than what it was in that yeah. mid to late 80s period. So, Mike, l- let's go ahead and jump into the... Should, should we after yeah, about 20 minutes? Yeah, 25 <laughs> minutes. Let's jump into the actual survey. Right. Um, so, yeah, have at it. <laughs> All right, we're going to focus on the, the central and Mississippi flyway here. And what, we're, what I mean by that is we're going to try to look at uh, some of the breeding population and habitat numbers that, as Matt said, are, are most relevant to, to folks in, in those two flyways. I guess the first thing that we need to orient people to is we'll probably throw around some terms like traditional survey area and eastern survey area. And then we might even later on talk about western mallards and eastern mallards. And some of this can get confusing, you know, if you're not, if you're not, uh, if you don't deal with it every day. When we say traditional survey area, that's going to be the regions of the prairie pothole in North Dakota, South Dakota, uh, pretty much all of uh, eastern Montana, up through the Canadian provinces of Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, and then up into the Northwest Territories, and then over, over over into Alaska. And those that traditional survey area is broken down into individual strata. I suspect we'll we'll break this down into some individual strata later on. Those strata are all set up based on some statistically uh, some statistical principles and and understanding of where the ducks are breeding, and we can go into a whole lot of detail on that if we wanted to, but uh, but we won't. Uh, then there's also the eastern survey area. We're probably not going to talk too much about that with the central Mississippi Flyway, uh, but it includes the survey regions in basically Ontario, Quebec, into the Canadian Maritime Provinces, uh, and the northeastern, I guess Maine is probably the only state that's included in that eastern survey area, but there are also state surveys conducted in in states from like Virginia up to Maine. There are state surveys conducted in Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Michigan, and all those, those are, although they are not technically included in the traditional survey area, you do find those estimates in this report, and they're relevant to hunters in the central Mississippi Flyway, and we'll talk about those. Um, so, with that kind of uh, backdrop, anything else that I need to orient folks to there, Matt? I think that's that's got it. Okay, so the numbers that you would have seen come out from Ducks Unlimited on Friday through our, in our when I say come out, we we posted the results from the from the report. The big number there, headline number, was thirty four point two million ducks. That is a combination of ten of the most abundant species in that uh, in in that region, plus a few others. I forget what that list is right now, uh, but it would include. Uh, species like ringnecks and um, do you know right offhand? Uh, Probably golden eyes. Yeah, I can't remember if they're in there or not. But anyway, the 10 most common species and then a few others on top of that that, that w- they roll up to. And that was a 34.2 million ducks, breeding ducks. Is the other thing to, cl- to clarify. We're talking about the breeding population size. This number does not factor in the production that would have occurred this summer. So the survey was conducted in May into early, mid-June. And so that's generally around the time of peak nesting, early nesting, peak nesting. Uh, so it does not count production. And if you're a hunter, what you're interested in is the fall flight, the birds that are flying south, which is a is a function of the spring breeding population size and how much production they had uh, during a given year. So keep that in mind. Uh, that 34.2 million number was down 12% from the last time we had a number of 38.9 million. That was in 2019 because we had two years without the survey because of uh, COVID-imposed restrictions and travel restrictions, things of that nature. And it's, you know, I've thought about this a lot over the past few days, trying to make sense of this. People ask me, well, we were down X percent from 2019. What does that mean? 
that's tough because we've got two years of data that we're missing um, to know. I, I say it's tough to know if we should be concerned, like by a, a 23% decline from 2019 numbers for mallards. What we really want to look to, I think, as a benchmark for whether we should be concerned, what direction we're headed long-term, is that long-term average. So when you compare that 34.2 million to the long-term average, we're down only about 4%. The long-term average for total ducks in the traditional survey area is 35.5 million. Um, now, does, this chart could be totally different based on that. You know, mentioned if we had the 2021 numbers, which it was pretty dry yeah. last year. Oh, well, it was incredibly dry. Yeah. I would have expected the 2020, uh, 2020 number would have been higher, you know, um, because you kind of, this is where this conversation can get kind of weedy. What we have to think about is this 34.2 million number is a function of, I guess you'd say three things. One would be the, the breeding population size in 2020. The other would be the production in 2020, and that gives you your fall flight. And then you kind of have to look at what the survival of that fall flight population was over the fall and winter to get you back to the spring. So, yeah, undoubtedly that 2020 number is probably going to be in the spring. It's probably going to be higher than what we have this year. We also know from all the talking that we did over the past year, all the field reports, all the looking at drought maps and so forth, was that last year was near – I don't want to say near record, but it, it was one of the driest prairies that we've seen in 20, 30, 40 years. You know, it, we don't, we didn't have the data, the pond counts from last year, but it was dry by all accounts. So we know there wasn't a whole lot of production last year. Uh, and so when you try to factor that into what, what we thought we might see for a duck number coming out in spring of this year, 34.2, Chris, Chris, you and I were talking about, that's about this last Friday. That doesn't surprise me a whole lot. And I, I knew we would be down um, if we weren't down and really make, I say I knew, I, I, I certainly expected us to be down because of the, the um, almost certain low production last year. So 34.2, I kind of thought it would be lower than that. I think I had put it at about 32 million. I think our colleague up in Canada, Canada Dr. Scott Stevens, expected it to be... Uh, around that 32 mark as well, but it came in at 34.2. And how do we get? How do we arrive at 32? Yeah, you're just kind of looking back over over the other trajectories and stuff, and um, thinking what it might have been. Matt, were you surprised at that 34.2 number? Because I know you had thought about it. You tried to to come up with a number, right? We we had discussed that. We were what we used to do in uh, DU years and years ago is we take bets at <laughs> what we thought the the numbers would be, and and you know, it fell kind of by the wayside when yeah. the surveys were suspended. But I I asked you, and and I don't remember what what number you came out with. I think it was in that ballpark. Yeah. Uh, so it, yeah, I, I looked at these numbers as as very much a glass half full because I think what uh, listeners out there should. You know, keep in mind is think if we had not had a turnaround in habitat conditions on the eastern prairies and on, you know, especially in the Dakotas, Manitoba, eastern Saskatchewan, if it had stayed dry, it was last year, think of what these numbers would have been like. And, you know, there's definitely some things to be concerned about here, particularly pintails. But, you know, canvasbacks hung in there. Uh, Blueing teal made a really nice jump. They piled into the Dakotas where it was wet and mm -hmm. probably had great production. So, you know, while these numbers are not stellar, I think we all, all ought to keep in mind that it could have been a heck of a lot worse. Yeah, it, it could have been. And Matt, you touched on the, the, the other key part of this report and of the survey is the pond count data. You know, that, so they, they survey data or they survey ducks, count ducks, and there's all sorts of methodology behind that. The other thing they do on these transect-based based surveys, I guess that's the other thing I would say. It's not a census. It's not like they're up there trying to cover this entire landscape. It's a transect-based survey, statistically rigorous, statistical principles behind all of this, measures of variation, et cetera. Uh, but the other thing that they're counting while they're conducting these surveys are the number of ponds in the prairies. They don't do this in the boreal forest. They don't count ponds uh, along those transects because they're much larger, much, they're not as discreet as the ponds in the prairies. Uh, they don't count ponds in Alaska either because the same thing, it's it's a more, the, the, the ponds and wetland systems are not as discreet as what you get in the prairies. And so the pond count is important because 
that gives us kind of our index of reproductive potential. That's what you you kind of talked about. If it had stayed dry, um, the number wouldn't, I wouldn't have necessarily, unless it affected where they settled and maybe affected our ability to to survey them with a certain level of precision or something of that nature, I wouldn't have expected this 34.2 number to be much different. What I would have expected would be our optimism for what the fall flight will be as well as the optimism for what the breeding population size next year will be because with a with the return of water to the eastern prairies both in the U.S. and Canada um, this winter, late winter and spring, it gave a real boost to those wetland conditions and set the stage for good production for those ducks, as you said, that settled in that landscape. But that doesn't show up in these numbers yet. That'll show up in the numbers next year, which will be exciting to see. So the pond number for this year, which I alluded to but didn't talk about, was 5.45 million estimated ponds in the U.S. and Canadian Prairie Survey region. That's up 9% from the last time we did this in 2019. Uh, And it is pretty similar to the long-term average of 5.2 million. So from a habitat standpoint, yeah, glass half full. The Mm -hmm. the the stage is set for those birds that settled in that wet landscape to have good production year. There are parts of the prairies that were still dry, Western Saskatchewan, Southern Alberta, uh, most of Montana was pretty dry. And Matt, I'm sure you have dug into this report. That's one of the other things that you can get from this is some pretty detailed narratives of what the pilots saw uh, or summaries of what they saw relative to habitat conditions in each of these survey areas. So I encourage people to, to if you're really interested in this, <laughs> or you really want to know what's going on, uh, go get the report and read through it and you will get a great assessment of, of, you know, of what the pilot saw and kind of how all this sets up. So what else there, Matt, from a big picture? Well, I think as you, as you noted, the uh, uh, western prairies, which is really the core of that pintail breeding range, western short grass prairie, uh, western, west central Saskatchewan, southern Alberta, that is still in a, a severe drought, um, or at least large parts of it are. And when those pintails were coming through, uh, this spring, they there was no water or, or very little water to hold them up, and I think that was directly reflected in that uh, in that pintail number, which I think is the most worrisome number in the in the report. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. about that pintail number i think what we need to do here at some point is kind of uh, we've kind of given the the high level overview there and i think we would be worth going down through some of these individual species and talk yeah about that's it. what i think you know if you if we're going to break it down by mid-continent we need to go ahead and do that now <laughs> yeah because we're 40 minutes in and we haven't even done that yet <laughs> uh, so let's do it let's do it so i mean i'll throw it out there like and just say hey you know one thing that jumps off and everyone noticed and i've heard people talk about is the mallard number yeah but how does that mallard number translate when you're discussing it from a mid-continent population um a mallard yeah let's see uh sounds kind of low-hanging fruit there, yeah you know. yep 7.2 million down 23 percent from 2019 i saw a lot of people kind of uh, getting real anxious about that. But look, people got to remember that the past, you, you take out the last two years and you go back to 2019 and before, and we had a, a run of really good uh, 
uh, population numbers for mallards and all dabblers. We, I guess, what was it? Was it 2014, 15? We had some really wet years or 12, 12 and 13, something like that. I need to pull up this little graph here. So this 7.2, that's why I say let's look at the long-term average. It's only a little bit below that long-term average. And all that 23% decline from 2019, I think, scares people a little bit. But you got to look at that long-term average. Um, you have to go... You have to go all the way, you know, that, that this number, that Mallard number is not something we haven't experienced before and, and isn't something that we haven't seen, you know, we've seen numbers lower than that before. Think, what was it, 2006, I think, was lower than It that? was. I actually had that 2005 oh, okay. was lower at 6.7 million, you know, and that, and that stuff happens when it gets dry, when the prairie gets dry. That's not, this is going to be new to some of our younger hunters that, that haven't seen these dry cycles. Uh, and we've probably actually been on about a 20-year string of favorable conditions, at least in some portion of the prairies, you know. So we've been in the good old days. Yeah, it's from, <laughs> pretty much from a breeding population yeah. standpoint. Now, there's other things happening across the landscape that are that are uh, that are influencing what hunters see. There's like different things going on here. There's one is the breeding population size. There's production that translates into fall flight. But then whether that means you're going to have a successful hunting season or not depends on a whole host of other factors that also are changing. Whether we're talking about landscape change, temperature change, climate change, et cetera, all those things come into play um, when we talk about hunting su success. Breeding population is just one variable in a, in a, in a formula, an equation that has no fewer than six or ten different variables floating around from every, you know, every year. So, yeah, because uh, you really can't take the survey data literally. That, you know, there are people online, like some of the Facebook posts and Instagram, and people, you know, they're under the impression that they're going to see 23% less mallards than they saw in 2019 in front of their blind. Yeah. And I think that's good to point out that, like, this is, you can't take it that literally. Yeah, right. I had, I had a, a former supervisor, Barry Wilson, down at the Gulf Coast Joint Venture, whenever he was, he, I, I never saw this presentation, but I heard about it, and it was probably at a time when similar kind of angst was happening around some low population size and low population sizes. And so he put together a presentation where he had my understanding of this is he had like two images, flocks of birds, you know, two compared two images of flocks of birds. One of them had twenty three or twenty five percent fewer birds, or whatever the decline would have been around that time. He had. You know, let's say it's 25% fewer birds in one picture versus the other. And he would ask the question, can you tell a difference? Can you even see a difference? I'm telling you there's 25% fewer birds in this picture than the other one. Most people can't, you know. So what, yeah, you, you're right, Chris. You can't immediately translate these numbers into your hunting experiences. Uh, the other thing we know is that, hey, when populations are lower and habitat conditions are good, those individuals are going to produce at a higher rate, sort of per capita. Their re recruitment should be higher. So it'd be a good production year for those species that settled in those areas that saw a relief from drought there in the prairies. We haven't even talked about the boreal forest, you know, mm -hmm. and it's kind of relative stability and serving as a, a pretty consistent source of, of birds for the, for the mid-continent. <clears throat> So, yeah, you know, I'm looking, what I was struggling to find here is this table for mallard population estimates dating all the way back to 1955 in this report. You go back to the 80s, mid-80s, Matt, you were talking about early on. We had population estimates for mallards, breeding population estimates, 5.4 million, 5.4, uh, 6.9, 5.7, you know. So we've, we've seen lower population numbers, and we've seen mallards recover in pretty short order if habitat conditions improve. So... Um, there's no reason to be, you know, concerned or, or fearful necessarily of uh, for for the status of the mallard population. Uh, Mike, I'm going to throw you a curveball on that though. Um, uh, one area uh, which was a, a big story back in the late '90s and early 2000s uh, was the Great Lakes mallard oh, population. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, that was uh, seen as a, a kind of a good news story. Yeah. Uh, they were thriving and homegrown mallards. I think we had a piece in the magazine about that. Mm -hmm. And and they've kind of struggled the last couple of years. They uh, have. 
Uh, is that also a uh, function of the of the drought? I think there was some in Michigan and uh, parts of that region, or what do you think could be going on there? I think I saw the summary of habitat conditions there for those <clears throat> three Great Lake states of Wisconsin, Minnesota, and Michigan that that form the basis of that mallard that Great Lakes mallard breeding population estimate. And I think the overall assessment was you know uh, average to good habitat conditions. Now, my understanding from uh, based on an email from John Calusi. Uh, Minnesota, gosh, I'd have to look at what this is here. What I don't have that. Minnesota's numbers were down. I think um, I'm gonna. I'm, I'm not gonna get into too many too many details on this because I'll probably get something wrong. What I can say is that 2022 estimate for of Great Lakes mallards was down 17 percent from 2019, and it's now 34 percent below the long term average for Great Lakes mallards in those three states. Um, there was a pretty significant decline in Michigan, which I think people are a little perplexed by. Uh, and there's another other species in here where you see some dramatic declines and they make you scratch your head a little bit because it's not what you would have expected given what we know about their ecology and habitat conditions. And uh, I think habitat conditions in Michigan were were okay, if I'm remembering that correctly. I may have to look that up just to kind of verify, but... It wouldn't have. I don't think anyone would would have expected that decline that we saw in in mallards in in Michigan. And here I've got it right here, fifty five percent decline from twenty nineteen. That was actually a twenty 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 one survey that they conducted uh, in Michigan, and then like sixty percent down from the long term average in in Michigan. So that was a little bit of a surprise, I think, to people. They're not real sure what's going on there. But when you look at that, we're only talking about. I say, I don't mean to discount the importance of that, but we're talking about 140,000 mallards, um, you know, versus a long-term average of, what are we dealing with here, 335. So, you know, I guess just to, to summarize that, Great Lakes mallards are definitely a population of, of concern for us. There's a lot of research going on up there. There's been a lot of research into that group of birds for the last you know, 20, 30 years. And there are some declines that are occurring right now and have been for a fairly long period of time that we're, sometimes we don't have the answer. We're still trying to figure it out because there are a number of different variables that are driving what a population is doing. And they're trying to parse that out. DU is supporting a couple of science uh, research projects up there right now. Hopefully we'll kind of figure that out. What's going on? Now those Great Lakes mallards, are not included in that 34.2 million that I talked about, just to kind of clarify that. but Because that's outside the traditional survey. It area, is outside right. the traditional survey area. Yep. Um, so, yeah, what else there, Matt? While you do that, I'm going to see if I can find that Midwest uh, summary <laughs> Sorry. of habitat condition. No, it's good. Well, that, that was, as I said, you know, having uh, done the survey uh, articles Way, way back, uh, that was an area that was a good news story. Uh, yeah. And, and so that is, when I saw those numbers in the Great Lakes, I was just curious what, uh, Mike, what your take would be. And I guess we'll find out. We're, we're doing research. and and uh, uh, But it is it's like an interesting subpopulation. It's very important to hunters in those yes. states. Um, those homegrown mallards in the Midwest are important to Midwestern hunters. And uh, I did find the paragraph here, and this is the the, inf the additional information beyond the graphs and the tables in this report that I think a lot of our hunters could geek out on. Uh, the Midwest U.S. Uh, says the Midwestern U.S. was generally wet with colder than normal spring temperatures uh, across the northern regions. Minnesota recorded the fourth wettest year on record. Uh, Michigan habitat conditions remained excellent. The statewide wetland index declined slightly, but remained 2% above its long-term average. You know, kind of how do you square that with a, a pretty large decline, you know, percentage decline in the number of mallards you're seeing there? Don't really know. Uh, Great Lakes water levels remained above their long-term average. Wisconsin experienced wet conditions similar to elsewhere in the Great Lakes. So, Sometimes you're going to have that. You're going to have a year where you look at a number and you're like, eh, "What's what's going on there? That doesn't really square with what I would think it will think it uh, would be." There's some noise around these surveys, um, and when I say noise, there's some factors that you can't control for. Every one of these estimates has a measure of variation around it, so you kind of have to keep that in mind as well. And that's why, as we mentioned last week, one of the most important aspects of all of this is the continuity of a long-term data set. For example, if we only had two or three data points for Great Lakes mallards, 
we wouldn't know what to do with that. But we could because we have 20 or so years of data and we can see that long-term trajectory, it increases the confidence, it increases our confidence that that is a real decline and we really need to figure out what's going on there. So I wouldn't freak out too much over a, 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 a one-year change that may seem concerning. Got to keep an eye on it uh, in future years. There are some of these sort of significant declines that you can look at and you can say, I expected that based on what we know about the ecology of the species and um, the, the rigorous nature of the data that we collect from some of those areas. I'm thinking about prairie nesting species and we know they didn't produce a lot of birds last year because of the severity of the drought. So um, do we want to talk about pintails? Yeah, let's get into pintails. <laughs> I mean, that was the species that yeah. that kind of made me ask Matt, to, to come on, on the podcast because I walked into your office and you was like, did, you asked me, did you see the pintail number? I said, oh, I haven't really dug into that yet. So what was your reaction, Matt? What did we find there? Well, it, it was it's it's a record low. Um, I had to go back into the tables in the back of the status report like you just did to, to confirm that. But I knew it was, that was a really low number for pintails. And, uh, you know, it's they're such a great bird. It's all, you always hate to see that. Uh, but as you mentioned, it it's not a surprise given the uh, habitat conditions. Um, I guess the big question now is where do we go from here? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they're they're right at the very lower edge of the uh, AHM matrix yeah. for having a, a full season, even with one bird. Yeah. Um, so I guess that that just raises a whole host of questions. Uh, and and Mike, you know, when the science team looks at this, you know, are you guys looking at that as you know with the pintail? It is a pretty specific breeding habitat, you know, like Matt mentioned earlier, you know, there's, what is it, eastern Alberta, you know, south, southern western Saskatchewan, like right in that little corner, like that's pintail country, you know, those areas. And if they're dry, you know, how does the science team react to to knowing that that habitat and then seeing this record low number? Well, what I would say, uh, I've said this to some other person, conservation is a a long-term game. You know, it's not, we don't, overreact one way or the other to one year of data, Um, whether it be an increase or whether it be a decrease, unless there's something that we know is like, I don't know we've ever had this kind of situation where we've seen a dramatic decline and we're like, oh yeah, that's because of this one big catastrophic event that we have to triage. I don't think we we rarely, if ever, kind of face that type of situation. We can see some dramatic declines from one year to the next, but a lot of times it's caused by drought or something like that, as we've had here. Uh, So we look more at the long-term trends. Uh, and those, when we look at those trends, we try to relate that to other changes on the landscape or in their population ecology that we can measure and try to find uh, correlation, causation between certain other changes and what's going on with that population to see if you can identify what's driving the population. Pintails are a very interesting species, and it's probably, we need to do a species profile on, on this one. It's just a matter of getting the right person mm-hmm. in here, and there's a lot of good people. It's it's a it's a fantastic species to discuss, uh, and that captures so much of why what we do as an organization and as a group of conservationists is so important because it is emblematic of the decline in pintails is emblematic of what happens when we see large scale changes declines in the quality of the habitat that a species depends upon. Pintails are a unique case because they have. Historically, they've been so closely tied to that short grass prairie in the western edge of the prairie pothole region, southern Alberta, southwestern Manitoba, Montana, western Dakotas. Uh, and that's an area that over the past 20 years or so has not really seen as dramatic of a return to the abundant you know, wetland conditions of precipitation that we've seen in some of the eastern portions of the prairies and in the state side of the prairies. The other thing that's happened for that species the only reason we know this is because we invest in the in uh, in a whole host of scientific investigations. Some of them are on the ground data collection for the birds themselves. Others are investing in remote sensing analyses, uh, classifying satellite imagery, looking at how the landscape has changed over decades. And what we found 
is pretty strong signal that one of the primary drivers of that long-term decline in pintail population is a change in agricultural practices across the Canadian prairies. There used to be something, a practice called summer fallow, where during any given year, and I'll probably get these these numbers a little bit wrong, that's okay, uh, just for illustration here, somewhere around half of the of the acreage that was in cultivation, cereal grain cultivation in southern Alberta, Saskatchewan, um, I'm not sure, but I don't think it was as common in Montana, but we're talking tens of millions of acres, right? It would be fallow. They would, it would be not in production. So when that happened, they would kind of grow up in some little short grasses and remind pintails of the nesting habitat that evolutionarily they came to, to benefit from and they were drawn to. And so it's widely, or it's, it's thought that it was that period of summer fallow that allowed their populations to grow and be sustained at these historically uh, robust levels. But then that agricultural practice began to, began to wane. They started continuous cropping year after year. And then some other things that went on there and um, think, what is it? Um, conservation tillage, is that, that, that's the practice, I guess, where they left the wheat stubble uh, standing after harvest and when pintails to hold soil moisture and all that kind of capture the snow and then pintails come back in the spring they're looking over this vast western prairie landscape and what do they see but just millions of acres of this short stubble wheat stubble and they nest in it well then a few weeks later the farmers come along to, to plant their field necessarily so and there's some some disturbance of the nest and destruction of the eggs and nest and that kind of stuff and so that's believed to be a big reason for uh, for the declines that we've seen and so our challenge as a conservation organization is to try to figure out ways to work with the agricultural producers um, to, to uh, on practices that can that can produce the the food and fiber and all the stuff that we need off the land, but also kind of create a landscape that's suitable for pintails. So I went way down, way farther down that road <laughs> than I anticipated. But one of the upshots of that is we've seen, I think we've seen a decline in average pintail productivity over the years. They don't re-nest as prolifically as mallards or blue-winged teals do. So when you lose that initial nest attempt, they're one of the first ones back. When you lose that initial nest attempt, then they're not going to re-nest as often or as prolifically and, there's, there's a number of other things that are probably going on there as well, but that's just kind of a, a sneak peek at, at kind of what we think is going on with pintails in the prairies. Pintails in Alaska are sort of a bright spot. Alaska birds are going to be somewhat important to hunters in the Mississippi and Central Flyway, but that population, that group of birds really becomes important for Pacific Flyway hunters mm-hmm. when you talk about that. Um, what yeah, did I, so what did I forget? Well, one thing that you didn't mention that you had sent in an email, um, I think on Saturday when you were crunching all this data, um, you put out a number out there to show how close those population estimates were on pintails to becoming a restricted season and closing that. Yeah, uh, I want to be a little careful on that because I haven't, I'm not participating in those discussions. What I'm just doing is kind of looking at the at the matrix and looking at the report that's out there from the mm-hmm. Fish and Wildlife Service, the public report, nothing secret about it. And if you if you take the time to, to try to understand all the stuff that's going on in those models and the matrix that they put out there, uh, there's a, there's, there's, it's, it's a decision support matrix is basically what it is. It tries to, to distill this complex ecological um, system into a couple of variables that our harvest managers can use to make informed science-based decisions about what the, quote, optimal regulations for a given species and given year will be. And this is a system, a regulatory system that's in place only, only for, for the U.S. Canada has their own system of, of regulation setting using a lot of the same data, but there's some differences there as well. So what we're talking about here is the U.S. And go back to the, uh, encourage people to go back to our, uh, our series on what the history of waterfowl harvest management. We had uh, maybe four episodes with Jim Nichols where he broke down all the different aspects of adaptive harvest management. And fundamentally, any decision that we make, whether it's harvest or habitat or whatever, or a decision that you make about going to the grocery store, it begins with an objective. What is the objective you're trying to achieve with that decision? And so that factors into it as well. So you have to understand that. But the bottom line is that with all those kind of caveats, yeah, if my might look at that at that matrix suggested that we were within about 84,000 or so birds uh, pintails and that breeding population size of of being faced with the optimal regulatory decision maybe being a closed season now 
there would be a lot of other conversations that would have happened at the Flyway Council level between the states and the, and the feds on what they would have actually done. I have no idea what those conversations would have looked like. And some of those conversations about uh, about the data in this in this survey report and the AHM report are ongoing this week in three of the flyways, the Atlantic, Mississippi, and Pacific, actively having some of these discussions about what all of this data means, what their AHM models mean. Important point here, all of those discussions about the regulations as informed by the data in these reports is relevant to 23-24 regulations in, in that year, a year out. You mentioned early on that the Fish and Wildlife Service has started setting regulations a year in advance. Canada is actually on a <clears throat> on a system now where they set regulations for two years. Uh, and we, we can talk to someone about that, you know, how that came to be. And so, yeah, uh, a year in advance, the regulations for this year are unchanged. They're informed by a lot of the, the modeled estimates from last year. Um, so don't worry about anything this year. And the other, I guess the high-level thing that I'll, I'll say regarding harvest regulations, because they do fa- all these data from the survey, the breeding population habitat survey factor into them, along with other data, is that the Fish and Wildlife Service, I think there's something in here that says, for the, for the most part, Fish and Wildlife Service does not expect major changes in regulations for next year. You know, And, and so p- some people may look at, may hear that and like, what do you mean we're down uh, 12% from 2019 and below the long-term average and mallards are down 23%. You got to remember, there's a lot of things that feed into that harvest management decision, but an important part of it is going to be that pond count that we actually found this year, that we that they surveyed. That was real this year. You know, some people are going to say we make data up. <laughs> you get that too, right? That doesn't happen, I promise you. Um, but yeah, it's that increase in in wetland condition, wetland number in, in the prairies that was uh, that we that was estimated this year, that when factored into those models is going to project pretty good production and 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 allow for you know that that um, that that liberal season in 23, 24, That's going to be the optimal regulatory, the recommended optimal regulatory decision for all three flyways, basically, all four flyways, basically, in, in 23, 24. None of that's final right now. I have to say that. None of that's final. That's just a recommendation. Ducks Unlimited doesn't have any say in that. Uh, that's uh, Those are discussions between the states and the, and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and all that happens through the flyway councils. Absolutely. And, Mike, I think this is a good point where we can just kind of wrap up this episode um, and then look at start looking at some of the other maybe species-specific yeah, stuff. We, we can, we're going to uh, do two episodes on the Mississippi and Central Flyway. I know Matt, right? Matt and I were just getting ready to walk out of the, out of the studio because <laughs> you were on a roll. We we're just going to let you go. No, the uh, so yeah, so we can you know Sorry. we can dig in a little bit more of the you know mid continent survey. You um, asked the question. You got I me know. on the harvest regulation. I, I got you rolling. So, yeah. but, but then also you know we ne- really need to dig into in the next episode. You know we need to talk about the Pacific Flyway um, yeah. and the Eastern yep. Survey data. Yeah. So and we um, ha- yeah we haven't talked about gadwall, widgeon, teal, well and, and canvasbacks and I mean, canvas. That is uh, a, a good news story. I guess. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, certainly in comparison to the pintails, yeah, um, yeah. and and redheads as well. Yeah, redheads also. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that's great news. And and harvest regulations have been liberalized on canvas bags yeah. recently uh, yeah. with the two bird limit, and they've hung in there. Yeah. Uh, they went down a little bit this year, but I guess that's probably Mike a function of the water in that eastern portion of the prairies. That's really important for canvas bags. Yeah, n- yeah, no doubt. You know why. Um, why redheads jumped up 35% and 36% over the long-term average. Uh, Some of those species can kind of pop around year to year. And like I said, you can't can't explain every 100,000 bird move here or there, but that's why I'd say the long-term trajectory is good. But it is, it's, you know, uh, an uptick in redheads or at least a healthy, let me say, a healthy redhead population is consistent with what we've seen long-term for that species. So, yeah, another bright story. And that's story. not surprising based on the videos that you got last year and then kind of— That's like two years sh- ago. Is it two years like ago? That. Yeah. Down from Laguna yeah. Madre? Yeah. So, here's the other dangerous thing to do is to look at that other report that comes out. It's uh, the Fish and Wildlife Service produces 
made possible by the data provided by our hunters that participate in those harvest surveys. That report is out also. There's like six reports that come out all at one time. So waterfowl population habitat report. There's the adaptive harvest management management report. There's the est- preliminary estimates of waterfowl harvest from the past two years. Then there's like a woodcock report, sandhill crane, uh, bantail pigeon, morning duck. They're producing all these reports. They all come out at the same time. And it's but, like overload for you. You about pass out. Uh, yeah, absolutely. As you can tell. <laughs> and so the dangerous thing to do is to dig into that harvest harvest report and look at, okay, well, what was redhead harvest last year? And redhead harvest was actually down last year. And, and that's not dangerous. The dangerous thing to do is then say, okay, well, if redhead harvest was down, maybe that's why we didn't see as much of a decline in redhead numbers from 2019. You know, you can't, you're tempted to do that, but then you got to remember there's a two-year gap there. What did redheads do between that that two-year gap? So there's a lot of temptation to use data in a way that, yeah, maybe you shouldn't. Yeah. But well, it's think, fun to do anyway. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, in the next episode, we'll dig, dig a little further into the canvas back because I think, like you said, Matt, that's a good story. Um, that's a positive story. But yeah. for this one, we're going to go ahead and wrap this one up. Hey, Mike, this has been great. Matt, appreciate you joining us. Uh, Matt, any last words before we get you out of here? Uh, no, it's just a, a lot of fun, as as uh, always. It's always a thrill to be with you know our science team and hear their uh, perspective and take on on the latest uh, waterfowl surveys. It's uh, as you can tell from us the length of time we spent talking about just a, a tiny part of the data. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, something you can talk about for hours and hours. Yep, and we definitely will. Absolutely. That's yeah. great. I feel like I talk too much sometimes. No, it's perfect, Mike. No. It's perfect. <laughs> I'd like to thank my co-host, Dr. Mike Brazier, for really getting excited about the data and really digging into it and explaining what some of these numbers mean to your average hunters and, and your average podcast listeners here. I'd like to thank Matt Young, Editorial Director of Ducks Limited Magazine, for joining us today and providing an awesome, kind of a historical insight on the on the data, which is just fantastic. I'd like to thank Chris Isaac, our producer, for putting the show together and getting it out to you. And I'd like to thank you, the listener, for joining us on the DU Podcast and supporting wetlands conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. Stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com.